Hello everybody and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast. We gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film space course. This week, the special COVID-19 edition of Good Trash. First time ever, totally remote recording of uh, Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. Uh, yeah, we're times. not so much... We're not so much uh, gather around a table this week as we are uh, huddled over our individual computers. I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm gathered around something as table-like, and so are you. So, I mean, we're just <laughs> gathered around lots of tables. It's more of an L shape, yeah. I'm, I'm more <laughs> sandwich between two tables. Between two tables is my, <laughs> my new talk show. <laughs> between two tables. <laughs> Oh, shucks. All right, so in case you're tuning into this show for the very first time, we ordinarily are in a room together. Also, we ordinarily do a thing called spoilers because this is not a review show. It's an analysis show, and that does mean spoilers are a necessary part of the formula. And so what we'll do, though, to preserve you from spoilers from this movie from 1987, as though you need preservation in any way, uh, is that we will have a synopsis, which will be generally spoiler light. We'll have our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which is also spoiler light. We'll expand the syllabus, which might get into the gentlest cycle of spoilers. And then finally, it is a heavy duty sanitary wash of spoilers once we get down to business. Uh, there you go, dear listener. You have warned. So, um, I guess, uh, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I I don't know who I am. If if the voice is coming from my computer, is it still me? Sounds like it. Yes. Okay. Well, I guess it's still me, Dalton. Then hi, hello, listener. Hi. Um, I, I'm so out of sorts because I'm not looking at your faces. This is yeah. This is wild and crazy times. Uh, I so, put teddy bears in both of your chairs, did uh, you? <laughs> so it's like you're here in the room with me. At, at, I, put, I, actually, I put Grumpy Bear in Pops's chair, <laughs> and I've got uh, I've got. Cheer bear in Dalton's. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds very funny. At church today, uh, when I came in to uh, talk to my empty room, uh, somebody had put labels <laughs> in all the chairs of who sets where, which was now that's cute. That was very adorable. Yeah, there's a lot of people I know trying to uh, organize uh, called in uh, comedy shows, and yeah, that that seems mm-hmm. very difficult. Good luck making a, a not room laugh. Yeah. Uh, seems hard. Uh, here's to all of you trying it right now, including Dustin. Um, yeah, today was, uh, look, uh, I'm excited to talk about some other movies we have to talk about today, but I'm really, can we get into Near Dark? Because I've been looking forward to talking about this movie for, uh, years on this show. Well, let's, let's do the thing then. Now that we've identified ourselves, um, I guess I'll go to you first, Dalton, since you're so excited. Do you like Near Dark? Thumbs up, thumbs down. What do you say? We did skip an important part. Uh, Arthur, uh, with your dulcet, beautiful tones, would you like to tell people what happens in in this motion picture show? Hey, Catherine Bigelow's second feature and first solo directorial attempt is a dark genre piece combining horror and western. Caleb meets a mysterious young woman named May. The two drive around all night until May starts to get nervous and demands Caleb take her home. He refuses unless he can kiss her, but she does, she does, but she gets a little violent in the process, biting him. He finally gets her home, but he soon discovers there might have been more to that bite than he realized. There you go. That's it. That's your dog. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, That's like the first 15 minutes anyway. Uh, Yes, there are. Look, it's all all you need to know for now. Hilarity ensues. It turns into a musical. There's a lot of dance numbers. It's, um, you know, it's pretty great. Doris Day sings Que Sera. 
it's it's fabulous. Um, so uh, <laughs> Dalton. Yeah, this is this is actually the the original appearance of Make Them Laugh. A lot of people don't know that. They think it's singing in the rain. Not so much. <laughs> this movie made it 40 years after. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so, um, Dalton, what do you think? Do you like Mirror Dark? Man, I do. Uh, look, first of all, I love I love an 80 minute movie. Who boy, uh, you know me. Uh, I, when we when we get our homework for the show, and I see 80 minutes, I'm I'm excited because it means I might actually get to watch <laughs> more than two movies that week. Uh, but no, I, I, I'm a big Near Dark fan. Uh, I actually enjoyed it uh, a lot more on this, the second watch. I watched it a couple years ago, uh, just because I like Catherine Bigelow movies. Uh, but revisiting it for the show, uh, I really do like it quite a bit more. And I think it's because I've seen The Loveless, uh, since the last time I visited Near Dark. Um, the three of us were kind of, uh, lukewarm on The Loveless when we watched it, uh, for the podcast and we discussed it on the show. But I feel like it's a movie we talk about all the time now. Uh, it's it's one of those that kind of like grows in my estimation anyway, the more I think about it. And, and with that in mind, it, it did make me really come to appreciate Near Dark a little bit more. Uh, I think there's some structural issues with it, and I'm sure we'll get into that more uh, later on as we, we kind of get into our analysis, uh, kind of talking about the form and structure of the movie. But yeah, there, there's just some some pieces that don't totally fit together, but I do love... Uh, just the eye for landscapes in this. Uh, Bigelow and her director of photography, who I, I don't uh, have in front of me right now, so I don't know who did that on this one. Uh, but man, there's just a real like deliberate attempt to be evocative of those Western landscape shots to make it very clear, yes, we know we're doing a Western vampire movie. We hope you like it. Uh, it, it is weird to me that this this movie didn't... Uh, didn't blow up. We've we've watched a lot of movies, I feel like, over the last two years on the podcast that are kind of part of this this 80s and 90s uh, neo-Western movement that I don't feel like really got uh, acknowledged at the time. Things like this, Thelma and Louise, uh, I would even say Terminator 2 to some extent, these these uh, desert road movies uh, of the early 90s and late 80s that all kind of feel very much uh, in the mold of Westerns, despite what other genre trappings they might bring to the table. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, every bit of that uh, sort of Western flair is here. It, it doesn't hurt that our our gang of vampires are all clearly doing some variation of uh, Western archetypes uh, of, of bandit characters that would not feel out of place in a John Ford movie. Uh, but I, I mean, everybody's so great. Obviously, the incredible late Bill Paxton, but Jeanette Goldstein and uh, Lance Henriksen, uh, all three of them as kind of our lead vampires are great. Uh, we got the kid from uh, River's Edge that mm-hmm. Dustin hates. Uh, he's here as the baby vampire. Love him. And really, <laughs> it's a shame that the only uh, person that doesn't really come to the table with a lot of chops is uh, our, our lead character, Caleb. Um, oh, gosh. Arthur, what's that actor's name? Pazdar? Adrian Pazdar? Adrian Pazdar, thank you. Yeah, I mean, he's, look, uh, Pazdar's been around. I've seen him in other stuff. Uh, I think I've actually liked him in other stuff, but he's just not quite there uh, in Near Dark. Uh, he's doing his best. He, he does have a certain amount of, like, wholesomeness and aw shucks earnestness that definitely lands for me. Like, I buy it, but he's just a little bit more tenured, especially next to, to Ginny Wright, uh, as who is May, I think, just kind of, like, slips right into that role really well. But again... Uh, those, those kind of structural issues aside that hurt the pace and kind of bog the pace down for me. I just like looking at this movie. I like living in its vibe and its world, like the costumes and the mute, the Tangerine Dream score. Just oof, oof, all those performances, all that music, all that pretty landscape. Yeah, I'm in. This this is a movie that that does it for me. 
All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dolph Stewart. What do you say, Arthur? What do you think of uh, Near Dark? I almost said The Loveless. Sorry. Uh, you're close. Uh, I, I actually echo Dalton quite a bit. I think that this film uh, has a fantastic aesthetic, a great look. Uh, that kind of Western sunset dusk aesthetic that it has uh, works really well. Uh, the, the, the supporting cast, as, as Dalton mentioned, Hendrickson and, and, and at all, uh, you know, Bill Paxton is just on another level. He steals the show every time he shows up in a scene. Uh, Pazdar again, yeah, just like, I mean, like Dalton said, I think Pazdar is the weak link. I think there's a stilted, uh, Nista's delivery, uh, that doesn't quite match, uh, kind of what the rest of the cast is going for. And I think he's the weak link there. Um, Beyond that, the cinematography, uh, Dalton mentioned, uh, the cinematographer is, uh, Adam, uh, Adam Greenberg, uh, who did both Terminator films, uh, several blockbusters in the nineties. He did Rush Hour, uh, Snakes on a Plane. So, I mean, he's, you know, definitely done a lot of, of action and genre stuff. Um, and so worked with Cameron, it looks like quite a bit. He did Ghost as well. Um, so he's definitely working a lot in the nineties on some pretty notable films. And he captures the look here great, I think. Um, I, I like the uh, approach to vampire mythology and, and lore. I, I like the direction that goes. Um, I like that they don't fully um, buy into a lot of the, the tropes and kind of focus on just a few specific things to really make these guys dangerous. Um, I, I think this is a, a lot better uh, effort than something like The Lost Boys, which I just don't love. Um and I think the kind of the approach to the vampire grouping here uh, works a lot better. Um, so yeah, I, I, I had a blast. I, I like that we're able to kind of identify Bigelow's markers here. I mean, it feels just like the next, next step stone uh, in that evolution from the Loveless to Point Break. Um, looking at outsiders and looking at uh, masculinity and gender norms and things of that nature and Everything that interests uh, Bigelow is on display here, and I think it's a really cool example of her work. And uh, just seeing uh, such a noted action uh, director so early doing something so different is, is I think, very fascinating. So I, I dig this one a lot. Very good, very good. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I also like this movie, but I, I like the two movies that it is, is what I, I think I, where I finally fall down. Is I, I think I know what you mean by that, but I, elaborate. I know. like the sort of ennui, uh, lonesome landscape, uh, sort of lovelorn, loveless, uh, perhaps, uh, kind of framing, especially, uh, that relationship between our main characters, uh, May and, uh, Pazdar, whatever his, uh, what is his name? Caleb. Caleb. I want to say Wyatt for whatever reason. Uh, Ooh, better name. I know, right? Uh, you know, like, there's that relationship and this sort of, like, tortured love and, you know, um, sort of unaccessible love, kind of uh, proto-Twilight, but better, uh, that's going on there. I really like that. And I also really enjoy, you know, that being juxtaposed against some of the sort of, like, really strong, again, lonesome landscape kind of gothic vampire stuff. So that's one movie. And then there's this other movie that Lance Hendrickson and uh, Bill Paxton are in. Uh, which is this bonkers, um, scary Western archetype banditos who also just happen to be vampires. That movie is, it feels again, very different with Bill Paxton in his leather jacket or Bill Paxton in his, uh, you know, uh, bolo tie, uh, women or, 
you know, Hendrickson talking about how uh, he fought for the South in the Civil War, and he stops by the same hotel every 50 years or so. Like, there's that movie, but that movie, which includes Homer, uh, this kid character, and, you know, the awesome stepmom of John Connor from Terminator 2. Yeah, Jeanette Goldstein, uh, the the incomparable Vasquez. Yeah, her outfit in this movie is incredible. It, yeah, it's dope. I mean, it absolutely is. Been. The chaps, yeah. So, But that's a, a slightly different... I like both the movies. That's the problem. And so I, I'm, I'm not trying to say something really, really negative here. Is I actually like both the movies that this movie is. But... As I start watching one, I was missing the other one until I got into the next one. And then by the time I got into the next one and they started showing parts of the other movie and I was missing the other one, if that makes any sense at all. And uh, so I, I, I find that that is the, the, the fundamental structure problem uh, that the movie has. Is It just seems like it's two movies zipped together in uh, maybe not a clumsy way, but not a very uh, cohesive way. Other than that, performance is great, uh, special effects great, vampire lore great, you know, give me those aesthetics, I'm there all day. But um, I enjoyed it, but there was there was always something going, ah, I just wish it would pick a lane. So, those are my thoughts. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, again, I, I think, uh, I, I kind of like the, 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 the juxtaposition of those two uh, vibes, uh, but I, I kind of I know what you mean as far as like the pacing. Um, I think more than not liking the mesh of those two vibes, I do dislike how the them rubbing up against each other kind of slows the movie down. Well, I so mean, I one of them it. is a fundamentally slow movie, and the other one's not. Exactly. And... Yeah. Yeah. The other one is a full bore, uh, go for broke, anarchic uh, nonsense fest, uh, and the other ones, yeah, is sweeter, more completive, sexier. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, I get you. Yeah. Uh, so there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts uh, on uh, this movie. And uh, we're going to move on to a hypothetical part of the show in which we invent a class in which we are teaching this film. It is a university-level class. It could be in any subject, so it doesn't have to be English slash film studies. It could be sociology, psychology, history, um, biology, I guess, for vampires. I don't know. Um, but whatever the subject happens to be, we're going to sort of name drop that. And then we're going to talk about how we'd expand the syllabus. What else would we use uh, to teach this film? And what would that class or module or section of classes look like? I go to you first, Mr. Arthur Gordon. How would you expand that syllabus? Yeah, so I was kind of thinking about this uh, from a genre aspect. And so I think I would do playing with genre, the Western. Um, I'd start off with Hollywood genres, uh, film genre, and the genre film by Thomas Schatz, uh, which just outlined a lot of the kind of you know, main points of what is a genre film. What does that look like in framing that against, I believe the Western itself uh, as kind of the most classic of genres, I believe going back to early Hollywood and then silent film, um, you know, that and horror are kind of the, the two we go back to. And so I, I kind of look at that, what makes a Western a Western, um, you know, probably go with something like that, maybe John Ford stagecoach or something along those lines, very classic, very, very specific examples from the genre. Um, and then from there I'd move in and start doing some things that maintain the genre tropes, but change the settings quite a bit. Uh, and so I was thinking Yojimbo uh, by Kurosawa, mm. um, kind of, you know, East meets West in that regard. And then kind of talk about the back and forth uh, influence of the two, you know, the samurai film and the Western and how they kind of shaped each other for the decades to come. 
Um, from there, I would move into John Commodore's uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, this is a, you know, a very much uh, kind of a crime thriller, um, but also a take on Rhea Bravo. And so I would kind of make those parallels, those connections, um, highlighting the, those, those pieces and then move into Old Man and the Gun, David Lowry, um, and kind of putting it side to side with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and kind of talking about that intertextual, uh, relationship and connection and the meta narrative kind of at play in Old Man and the Gun. Uh, and then from there, I, I wanted to go with James Mangold, uh, who's kind of the modern master of the neo-Western. And I, I wasn't going to say Copland, but I think I'd go yeah. Logan and how that works in the uh, uh, ongoing slate of comic book film um, and how he really captures, I think, the ideals of the Western and frames them within the uh, playground of a, a Marvel film. Um, and so that's the way I would take that class, I think, and just kind of really dive into genre and what it looks like in regard to the Western Very, and how that can be played. Mm, I tell you what, yeah, I'm a big fan. You've been bringing up Old Man and the Gun a lot lately. And uh, look, I, at first I wanted to I, I wanted to take you to task for it, but it's such a good movie that, yeah, it, it's so versatile. There's, it's the most charming film to come out this decade. Whoa, yeah, yeah. I would. That's the most charming film of the 2010s. Feels like a high praise, but not an accurate I think a case could be made, yeah, pretty easily. <laughs> So, all right, Dalton, um, how would you expand that syllabus? Well, I wanted to, I also wanted to kind of do a, a little bit of a genre thing, but, uh, more looking at kind of our, our folklore evolution, right? Uh, so obviously I want to go more, uh, the vampire avenue of this and the Western avenue. Uh, but the thing that I find so interesting about Near Dark, you know, when we think about where vampires come from, uh, obviously there's a folklore across the globe that kind of gets molded together. Uh, in, in packaged into the uh, the product that becomes the modern vampire. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, on this show that history. You can go listen to the Borgo cast, uh, which Dustin does on his own, if you want to hear him talk about Dracula uh, and kind of where Dracula comes from. But Bram Stoker's Dracula is, you know, in terms of uh, Western storytelling, kind of the, uh, the the keystone that we go to for this is when all of classical folklore uh, from the different parts of the world kind of coalesced into this vampire as we know it and for so long that was defined as uh you know this this metaphor for uh intrusive mysterious exotic sexuality from lands we don't know or uh, uh bloodthirsty aristocrats uh taking uh, the life force of the proletariat uh these are the kind of the, the the themes and metaphors we get stuck with for so long but i'm really interested in what i i see near dark fitting into as uh these postmodern vampire movies uh, it's it's not the first, and it's definitely not the last, uh, but I, I think it fits really interestingly in there. So we're going to kind of look at some postmodern vampire stories uh, that either have no regard for traditional rule structures of what you know the ways vampires are supposed to function, uh, films that have little regard for the ways vampires have been depicted in the past, uh, just just uh, stories that bring something different uh to these these monsters that we've spent uh you know a couple of centuries now interested in uh, so we're definitely going to start with uh both uh, near dark and as arthur mentioned a film he's not quite as hot on the lost boys i i think there's just a lot of uh tonal and aesthetic similarities but again uh catherine biglow is working in a much more restrained much more indie art house model and schumacher is working in a much more uh, big, uh, bombastic blockbuster model. So I think those two will be kind of fun to pair against each other. Uh, and, and again, here we're getting, 
uh, either vampirism as the the, the desire for uh, forever, forever youthfulness or vampirism as kind of a metaphor for highway drifter killers, weirdly, which I, I think I like a lot about Near Dark is uh, America, both from the Old West to today, uh, is, is a land where you can just, you know, go up and down a highway and kill people. And if you keep moving, you'll probably get away with it for a while. And I, I think that very American occurrence uh, of our, especially our 70s highway killers uh, that, that uh, there's been so much writing about. I, I think uh, those characters, of those vampire characters in Near Dark slot in that spot really interestingly. Uh, next, I want to look at uh, the Guillermo del Toro film Kronos. Uh, the vampire rules uh, in that film are just kind of unlike anything else. Uh, vampirism is passed by an old mechanism. Um, I'm, just, I'm a big fan of that movie. I'd like to uh, maybe we'll pair some uh, that reading with uh, some that that viewing of that film with some readings of some vampire folklore that's a little bit more off the beaten path. Uh, next, I want to move to a vampire comedy. Look, we don't talk about comedy in film studies enough, uh, so we're going to talk about Vampire in Brooklyn starring Eddie Murphy, which is nice. a movie I have not seen. Thank you. I have not seen this film in decades, but uh, I, I hope it holds up. I'm going to rewatch it pretty soon, I think. Uh, but, Directed by Wes Craven. Yeah, I know, but it's a weird movie. Uh, again, I haven't revisited in quite some time, but there's just a lot there. Uh, again, uh, the, the chance to... Uh, take the the original uh, metaphors of the vampire, uh, move it to uh, uh, Brooklyn, and have it star Eddie Murphy. It's good stuff. Uh, a film I look forward to revisiting. Um, also want to check out uh, the uh, Park Chan Wook film. Is this Park Chan Wook or Bong Joon Ho that did Thirst? Arthur, um, help Park me. Park Chan Wook. That, that is, is Park. Park. Okay. At any rate, uh, it's going to go take a, a revisit back to our, our glory days of loving Bong of. Uh, of loving Song Kang Ho uh, and check out this movie where he plays a, a hot priest who becomes a vampire. You know, I want to see that. I haven't seen it yet, but I think uh, for this ca this class, it'd be great. Uh, and then uh, to Arthur's point uh, again, or is either Arthur or Dustin, one of you mentioned uh, the, the function of these, these weird uh, murders. And again, talking about drifter killers, I think a non-conventional vampire movie, California, uh, with Juliette Lewis, uh, and Brad Pitt, not a good movie, frankly, kind of a bad movie, but I think it will be interesting <laughs> to look at uh, a film that's not about vampires and yet kind of 100% is, uh, in its own ways. Uh, I'm also thinking the Jim Jarmusch film, Only Lovers Left Alive is a great one. Just, uh, Vampirism, immortality is a curse. The ennui that comes with nothing ever ending. Um, big, big fan of what Jarmusch does in that film, and Tilda Swinton uh, is incredible in that film. Uh, Hiddleston's no slouch himself either, for that matter. Uh, and I think that's that's good work. Honestly, uh, there's probably a lot more we could do. That's probably going to be a class. It's going to be a lot more clips than full films. Uh, but that's just kind of a sampling of what I, I think we can get if we start looking at the ways we've started to subvert and invert uh, vampire stories over the last 30, 40 years or so. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I am also writing a vampire theme class, but I want to specifically just play around in the world of the 1980s vampire. Mm. And uh, so, you know, we got to have some hunger. You got to get some David Bowie in there. Yeah. Uh, to start out with, um, and then we've already mentioned the Lost Boys, but I think it is uh, Joel Schumacher's film. There is just an important and impressive touchstone: uh, the glitter in the blood, guys. The glitter in the blood. Um, I, I can say no more uh, about that than simply that, and making it worth the time to be paying attention to. Um, and then also Tom Holland's uh, 
Fright Night, um, starring Chris Randon. Oh yeah, and uh, the sort of an American suburban take on Dracula at this at that particular instance. And so you see kind of an ebb and flow, the street gangy kind of vampires of uh, the sort of California in The Lost Boys. Again, the sort of Western vampires that we experience in Near Dark, uh, the sort of alien sexual whatever uh, <laughs> that we experience in The Hunger. Uh, and uh, so that's that's kind of where my thought process is going, is just different ways in which this particular decade of Ronald Reagan and the first Bush uh, – began to help us think or well we began to think about these particular kinds of characters in particular kinds of ways and by the time you're at the end of that decade uh you know when you're at a place of fright night and whatnot uh, how does that open up what happens in 93 94 when we have francis ford coppola's um brand stoker's dracula and uh, so i wouldn't I, I would sort of like not necessarily show that in an 80s vampire movie class but i think it's a good way to show this is kind of where we're heading yeah, sure. If that makes yeah. sense. And you know, I've never sort of a stop point. Sure, sure. I, I've never seen Tony Scott's The Hunger, but I think about it a lot because uh, David Bowie, Catherine Deneuve, and Susan Sarandon were all in a movie together where they played horny vampires, and just knowing that that's a real movie that really exists, and it was directed by Tony Scott's, a lot for my brain to handle. You need it in your life. Yeah, it's pretty wild. <clears throat> yeah, I'm gonna have to check it out. I've I've heard nothing but truly, truly bizarre things about it. Well, and I think that proto-HIV, you know, uh, AIDS crisis uh, of vampires is probably most prevalent there um, as well. Sure. So, yeah. Well, and I think we get a little bit of that. I think we get a little bit of that in Only Lovers Left Alive, too. There's this idea in that film that gets introduced that, like, being a vampire in 2016, 2017, whenever that film comes out, uh, there's this idea that being a vampire is difficult just by virtue of the fact that, like, humans have terrible diets and are subject to pollution constantly. Uh, so their blood's unclean and not good for drinking. Yeah, like, uh, yeah. I, I love I love these ideas that you can get, uh, whether it is you know the, the HIV, uh, AIDS uh, metaphors in these '80s vampire films, or uh, taking it wherever the social themes of the day are. Yeah, vampires are versatile, man. Mm-hmm. All right, dear listener. Well, your syllabus just got quite a bit longer. I do believe now is the time we get down to business. Yes, business. Yes, business. And we are back, and my office space is, as you might notice, dear listener, shared. So um, you might hear um, some dulcet music coming in, um, and maybe some um, slightly off-key music as well. Um, the odds are strong. <laughs> Look, I got to be honest. Uh, this easy listening uh, makes for fun uh, aesthetic juxtaposition for talking about uh, near dark and uh, the themes contained yeah. within. <laughs> Man alive. So. Uh, it is a thing unto itself. Uh, all right, so I really don't have questions prepared as well this week as I ordinarily do. Um, but one of the things uh, we're talking about a lot with this movie and movies like it is we talk about style. And what I want to really kind of pin down is what do we mean by style and what exactly is stylish about this film? Well, I think we could start by going back to those landscapes I was talking about, right? Um, there's a lot of heavy lifting the style has to do in this film. Um, Dustin has already talked about this being kind of two films that are only just so fit together. Uh, and I, I would agree with Dustin, I think, in terms of plotting and, and story development, those movies don't fit together super well. In terms of style uh, and aesthetic, uh, I think those those films fit together very well. 
uh, again, th- this sort of robust Americana that we get, right? When we see a big desert landscape uh, that's evocative of John Ford films, uh, that sort of stylistic flourish immediately, whether or not you're familiar with those classic Westerns or not, there is sort of a subconscious programming because of just that visual language getting used again and again and again and again and again so, for so many uh, decades. Uh, I think just using a shot like that immediately kind of primes your brain uh, for a certain tone, right? I mean, style, uh, it, it's easy to dismiss films uh, as being style over substance sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's cheap. You know, I mean, again, there's some value in that when, you know, there's value in challenging a film for not doing everything it could have done. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, I think sometimes we don't give enough credit. Uh, style for its own sake is pretty cool sometimes and can actually do a lot of thematic heavy lifting. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, you know, uh, in, in addition to just, Cinematic language, I think, just the the, the use of color, uh, the use of cinematography. Um, to Dalton's point, I think all of that coming together kind of informs those uh, genre choices and those visual language choices. Um, the the kind of use of a lot of shadow and heavy darks, and and then using the red uh, for blood uh, makes it a lot more uh, emphatic when it does show up. I think, and. and um, just, uh, it all, you know, works together. I, you know, I think sometimes style over substance uh, is, is an issue, but I think this is a case where the style reinforces the substance of the film. And Absolutely. Where we really get into stuff like mise-en-scene, where the set design and production design all inform the themes and narrative. Uh, and I think that's, you know, definitely on, on hand here. Yeah. Arthur, you mentioned the shadows and I immediately thought of, I mean, how many, films especially westerns have we seen where there's a big shootout and our heroes are pinned down uh, and they're in a dusky saloon and there's light streaming in through the bullet holes like it's a it's a pretty classic and iconic western image yeah. uh, and using those light beams to cut across the shadows you expect in a vampire movie and then become a secondary threat other than the bullets that are raining in like yeah. it's so cool it, it just kicks a lot of ass and again i mean it's it's such an interesting visual image they use it on the poster uh, but it, but it really is. There's something immediately click. Okay, yeah, I've seen a western. I've seen sunlight stream through a bullet hole. I've seen a vampire movie. My brain has already put the puzzle pieces together. There is something that seems so obvious about it that when you see that image, you're like, yeah, this rules. I'm totally bought in. I was just going to say, I think the other thing we're kind of looking at here is that I think there's a little bit of noir influence as well uh, in in some of the design as well as the narrative, and I think. That also informs it. And I can't think off off head, and Dustin probably might know, of a lot of noir westerns um, where those two kind of collide. Um, but I do feel like that's Like Gun Crazy comes to mind uh, pretty quickly. I'm not familiar with that one. Kind of the western noir. Yeah, it's a Michael Mann, I think. Not Michael Mann. Uh, Mann, but not Michael. Uh, Touch of Evil but, feels, again, I haven't, not Touch of Evil's film I still need to catch up with. But I, as my understanding, it does kind of fit in that mold. Kind of a western town on the Mexico border, yeah. Yeah, Touch yeah. Needle's got some of that sense as well, yeah. That's a good call. Uh, I was going to say, in terms of style, I think one of the things that's interesting about the film is uh, a thing that it does that kind of does make the disparate parts kind of work together. So uh, there's some really, really long takes, especially in our sort of romantic couple scenes and landscape scenes that introduce them, right? These really long, kind of lonesome uh, uh just uh, leisurely takes. And they're not, you know, long takes in like an Andre Bazan, you know, um, 
uh, Renoir rules of the game kind of sense, uh, like that rabbit hunt. Uh, not, not a long take in those kind of senses, but just they're longer than typical, and they do sort of really kind of give you the sense of time uh, going by. Uh, I, I think especially like her little monologue talking about how long the stars have been up in the sky. And even though there are cuts in that particular scene, they uh, the individual shots linger a little longer than what you might expect. And uh, this is next to, well, that bar scene uh, where... Uh, Caleb's taken in, like, this is your one last chance to finally kill somebody, right? And uh, that scene, though it's cut, you know, again, there are, there are longer cuts than you'd expect as well here, but that scene just keeps going in a way that there's a, there's a certain leisureliness to the way in which these vampires are torturing or tormenting uh, the set of patrons, right? And I, I mean, you know, we're talking about style, like, uh, as far as like aesthetics, as far as costuming, as far as lighting, as far as like that choice with, uh, the bullet holes and the lighting, like I know that's all true, but there's also a, a really sort of editorial set of, uh, uh, choices that are being made here in the movie that are, I mean, thematically reinforcing, um, despite the fact that sometimes, you know, these two little pieces don't quite go together as well as I'd like them to. Well, we've, we've kind of talked a bit about substance or uh, style and substance at this point. I, I think we could uh, move on to talking a, a little bit up about this mashup, uh, just to kind of bring the style and substance question home. Uh, we've talked about mashups a, a lot on this damn show. Uh, not to spoil anything, but next week's episode is kind of a, a, another uh, tour down that avenue. Uh, a lot of the early days of this podcast involved us playing games where we would stick movie genres together to see what sort of uh, fun concoctions we could dream up. Uh, but it, it is kind of a common route, uh, and, and there's probably something to that just in terms of it's easy to sell a movie if you can very quickly pitch your new idea based on existing ideas. Uh, but just in terms of, again, as we, we bring home this question of the, the style of this film, uh, does any one of those halves, and I guess we'll start with you, Dustin, since you were just kind of talking to this issue you have with the, the, these halves of the movie, uh, do, is any one half particularly stronger? Do you like uh, either of you think, you know, in theory, uh, does this work better than in practice? Just kind of a, let, let's explore how we feel about this mashup in particular, I guess. Well, I guess I would say in terms of my, like my own taste and aesthetics, like that long on we kind of lonesome, sad, uh, wistful vampire story generally uh, attracts more. I, I love Only Lovers Left Alive. I think it's a fantastic yeah. one of my favorite movies, you know, and I really like that about it. But I do feel um, I think Bigelow's writing here kind of suffers. I don't think the dialogue is as smart as it needs to be for it, if that makes sense. And so that sort of art film indie vampire movie, there's a sense in which it doesn't work because sometimes Caleb says pretty cheese ball, just ugly, you know, tenured line reads. Um, and May does less so, but even occasionally she does as well in ways that sort of uh, off-puts me just a little bit. Um, and I think the, uh, again, the sort of uh, desperado story of uh, these, uh, you know, um, highway-traveling vampire killers, that really, really works. I mean, and I think every part of it is pretty strong, you know. Uh, and even when the lines are a little clunky and, you know, junky, but Jeanette or Lance or whoever can take those lines and just do what needs to be done with them. And they sound awesome, right? Uh, so I, I tend to prefer 
those two halves of the movie in terms of that movie half style and substance question, which comes down to, you know, what is the mashup exactly? Because one of them really is a vampire movie, and the other one really more or less is just a Western that just happens to have vampires. And so for me, I think the Western half works better, but I'm less sympathetic to it aesthetically. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I think I get what you're saying. Uh, yeah, there is something just, uh, again, with what Jeanette Goldstein, Lance Henriksen, and, and uh, Paxson are doing, you, you don't need them to be vampires. It kicks ass that they are, but again, they could be desperados in a movie that's taking place in the 1880s, and you're right. It, it would still totally work, uh, and you could probably still get away with a lot of the same aesthetic choices without it taking place in the, in the mo- then modern day. Uh, I am sure glad it does. Uh, you said something, uh, Arthur, I don't know if you have any thoughts about the genre mashup before we move on, but uh, Dustin said something about the the explicit vampire half of the movie that I thought was very interesting that we could get into, if you don't have any thoughts on the, the quality of this mashup. No, I, I'm, I kind of echo you know Dustin. I do think the uh, Western elements work a little better. I, I think the vampire stuff is... Interesting. As far as the set structure, you know, the set pieces that uh, arise, the uh, the bar and the the ending, uh, where mm-hmm. the, the real vampire stuff comes into play, um, is great. I, I, I think that barroom scene is just something else. But I, I think those are just you know really there to kind of infuse the stakes of the of Caleb's story. And I think the the moments where it's just riding with them is. Uh, a lot more effective and impactful than, than the rest of it. So I, I tend to probably agree with Dustin on some of that. Yeah, again, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I, I think Caleb as a character does very much kind of fit in this classical mo- mode of the, uh, you know, the, the wet behind the ears new kid. Uh, it's a character we get in a lot of Westerns, uh, a, a lot of just people on an adventure movie. Um, but yeah, that it asks Caleb to be that character in the Western halves of the film. Uh, and the vampire halves of the film ask him to be a much different character. So it is, it is frustrating to watch him kind of like, uh, in terms of how it impacts the story of the film and the structure of the film. It's kind of frustrating to watch him waffle back and forth, uh, between, uh, is he the, the guy that can't wait to be a desperado or is he the, uh, the lovelorn star of a vampire movie? And I think to that point, to, to get back to what Dustin said that, that it got my wheels spinning, I think now is probably to talk uh, about Catherine Bigelow, uh, and her role as the, the consummate queen of, uh, gender and genre films. Uh, it's just, she does it in all of them. Uh, I haven't seen Detroit yet. Uh, I probably will never get around to it. Uh, I've heard enough, but outside of that, uh, her films just do always find a really interesting way to not just bring, uh, you know, gender theory, uh, ideas of gender structures into, you know, genre and action cinema. She didn't just do that. That would be probably not enough. Honestly, lots of people do that. Uh, what she does is, is find, a really interesting avenue to approach it from. And in this case, you know, we've been talking about Adrian Pazdar's Caleb. Uh, Caleb gets to be the, the Mina Harker, right? Uh, Ginny Wright as May gets to be the, the, the sexually aggressive vampire who's trying to be like, you don't want any part of me. No, you gotta, you know, she's, she's getting to be the Edward from Twilight. Uh, again, Dustin evoking that, that proto Twilight reference, I think is, is right on the money uh, because we do kind of get a, a lot of the same interactions here. Uh, but again, just by putting Caleb in these situations where he has to, you know, prove what a tough, ruthless killer he is to uh, the much older, much cooler Lance Henriksen and Bill Paxson uh, and this this burgeoning romance he has. Uh, there's just a lot uh, Bigelow's doing here. 
Um, and she's doing a lot with just character pairings uh, and just character action. There isn't a need. And again, you both uh, a couple of times have talked about the dialogue not always landing either because of a performance or just the screenplay. But these themes, I think, work so well because there isn't a, a, there isn't a lot in the way of dialogue needed to further them, if that makes sense. No, I totally agree. Uh, I, I think also that uh, just as um, as a film, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's just it, it is just this weird, weird beast uh, because it is the, the way in which she sexualizes uh, those encounters is 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 very, very accurate. And, uh, you know, very, very sort of true to vampire lore and whatnot. But, I mean, was anybody else picking up on the pretty strong sexual tension between Bill Paxson and uh, Adrian Pars, whatever his name is, Caleb? I mean, this movie's, this movie's gay. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, there's uh, there's psychosexual – yeah, this movie's got psycho, all kinds mm-hmm. of psychosexual stuff going on. I mean, the fact that Homer uh, is in this film is nuts. Uh, and Bigelow is smart to be delicate with, you know, obviously just because you have uh, a vampire character that's an immortal child uh, doesn't mean you can do whatever you want with your child actor. But they do find uh, – the film itself does find a way to kind of interrogate what Homer's role is within this group. And it seems like it's probably upsetting, whatever it is. Uh, but yeah, like his – the way he interacts with Jeanette Goldstein's character – uh, in this sort of forever mother-child thing, but also he has this sort of older brother relationship with May, uh, despite, you know, physically appearing much younger than her. Uh, and, and again, all of these interactions and character pairings all do, I think, have uh, a, a definite sexual tinge to them. Uh, you know, Paxton's character, um, Severin, uh, is very clearly uh, into May, and I think you're right, Dustin, to, to bring up how gay the film is. I think Severin seems uh, interested in basically everybody, uh, but that's just kind of by virtue of him being a, a hurricane of a person. Well, I think there are elements here of, you know, of, of Paxton and Pazdar that do uh, set up what we, we get with uh, Reeves and Swayze and then Point Break and that relationship. It feels very proto oh gosh, in that you're regard. Right. Uh, in yeah. just their interactions and and the kind of chemistry that they have and and where I think Bigelow's wanting to lead them as as an item in this film. Yeah, I mean they're both relationships, uh, but both uh, you know Bodie uh, and Johnny Utah in Point Break and, and Pazdar and May in this film. Yeah, they're they're both relationships that are about one character trying to find some sort of like. Uh, release from a life that they've grown very bored with, right? Like it's, it's some, some mysterious figure that has some sort of knowledge they don't have and can maybe impart to them. Uh, yeah, you're right on the money with that, Arthur. I think that's, that's well spotted. Yeah, and I was just going to point out, you know, the, the sort of pansexuality of Bill Paxton's character as well. That moment when he bites the guy on the neck at the bar and says, Oh, I hate it when they don't shave. You know, it's <laughs> that. Rules. I love that moment so much. Yeah, there's all kinds of great stuff like that. Yeah, Paxton is, I mean, really the MVP of this film. And again, I like everybody, even Pazdar. Like, I, I like the way his, like I said, I, again, while we've all kind of talked about the shortcomings of the performance, I like his, his Oshuk's earnestness. But man, Paxton is just a, a true legend in this film. I, I mean, really. 
you know, Hicks and Game Over Man is is the one that gets all the the uh, cultural clout. Is the one everybody the reference everybody knows. But Severin is maybe the single coolest looking film character. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Yeah, he's a great character. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, those sunglasses uh, with the, the bloody teeth, I mean, uh, there's definitely a feeling of uh, inspiration for the character of Cassidy and, and Preacher and the way he's always drawn. You know, this is a book that comes out about nine, ten years later in the mid-90s, uh, and it feels very evocative of Bill Paxton in this film, just uh, with those big Ray-Ban sunglasses gr- grinning ear-to-ear with bloody teeth, and uh, yeah, with his spurs and his leather jacket, it kicks ass. He's a, he's an 80s cowboy, it rules. What, what else That's is totally there to fair. say about, about him? Um, do we have any other big thematic things that we want to sort of address with this uh, film? Um, I, I don't really have anything else other than maybe we can just kind of talk about uh, the weird climax, I guess. How, how do we feel about it? Uh, because, yeah, I think we've kind of crossed off the big thematic stuff. Uh, but there is a weirdness to uh, Caleb getting home, getting cured of his vampirism through blood transfusion, curing May, uh, and, and then and then the final duel. Like, it's just kind of a weird order of events. It's a weird way to structure things. Um, and then we close with what does feel like a somewhat sympathetic death for uh, the vampires as they're menacing our, our heroes. Um I just think the ending is worth uh, trying to pick through before we wrap things up. I think it's out of order. I think they needed to have their confrontation and fight and then get back to the farm and then as sort of a denouement have the transfusion cure for uh, Caleb and for May. But I think yeah. curing before yeah. and then fighting, it just it's it does create a sort of anticlimactic sense. It seems to be built to uh, to make Severin uh, and, and the rest like you know to to increase their threat level almost. You know, it seems like a calculated choice to depower Caleb. Uh, but you know, the, I, I wonder about the film that uh, says Caleb can never go home again, right? The film where Caleb and May have to defend Caleb's father and sister, but and you know maybe they do get to be together, but you know Caleb uh, and May don't get to have a normal life. It's time for them to to move on, but. Uh, at the same time, as I say that, I do kind of like uh, Bigelow's impulse towards a, a happy ending, and I, I don't know if that's just an attempt to to make, give the film the ending that the, the De Laurentiis company wants, you know, the ending that's going to be the, the moneymaker. Uh, I do kind of like that impulse towards a happy ending, uh, but at the same time, yeah, I, I'm more interested in, yeah, what could they have done uh, differently? Because it, as I agree with Dustin, it does feel out of order. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it worked for me. I think, you know, there's a lot of ways you could have worked it to do some more interesting things, but for me it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think probably a part of it does come back to not only structure in as far as order of events, but also structure and the, the tonality of the, the events as they unfold, um, which goes back to some of Dustin's earlier criticisms, I think, in that regard. Sure. And to that point about tonality, Arthur, um, uh, again, I think maybe this is the place to leave us. When, when Jeanette Goldstein and Lance Henriksen get this sort of uh, – I would say fairly somber send off by the film as their car bursts into flames. Uh, There is something, you know, classically Western about it, whether it's, you know, your Butch and Sundance, uh, your your Blaze of Glory ending, right? It kind of gives these characters that. And it it does, again, let the film be a little sympathetic to them. I was just wondering if either of you had any thoughts on maybe what the film's trying to get at here by letting these characters have this kind of... I, I don't know this this moment of resolution. Uh, I wouldn't call it redemption, but there is a, a certain 
kind of character resolution to it that feels sympathetic. My uh, background music got quite a bit louder, but I'll go ahead and say uh, that um, it was a let's keep driving Thelma moment is what I thought uh, more than anything. Uh, it's just, you know, which is anticipating a movie that's not quite out yet, but all these people are sort of thinking out loud together. I think um, these filmmakers are, and uh, it does feel like uh, it's a way of them living and dying on their own terms. And so I, th- I do think it's sort of celebratory of the two characters. Yeah, I, I do too, uh, and I, I think that's a good point. They, they just keep driving Thelma of it. That, that uh, yeah, I, I like the invoking that. Arthur, did you, did you have anything on that? I just, I you know, I think uh, we get a lot of Jesse as a character, and kind of his time here and what he's been through and where he goes. And I think to Dustin's point, you know, letting him have his send off seems like a very natural you know place for that character to go, rather than having him killed in maybe a more traditional sense, but, you know, allowing him to take that into his own terms. Yeah, as we're talking about it, uh, I, I am s- sort of starting to think about Bigelow as as a character that tends toward, um, you know, w- examining the emotional life of characters in action films, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and there is some sort of validation of this weird, fucked-up family unit, yeah. right? That despite this family of vampires being toxic and, you know, murderous, uh, there is a certain amount of empathy, uh, for this this weird structure they've this life that they've built built together uh yeah i i like uh, you mentioning jesse going i was on terms i think that makes sense but again it's Jeanette goldstein uh as a diamondback that kind of gets that final um moment before the car bursts into flames so i think yeah i i like what you've both said on this i've i've, I've new, renewed thoughts on it i do like it as this this moment of empathy for these weirdos well, alrighty then. I guess it's now time to render a verdict on this film. So, shelf or trash? What do we say? I go to you first, Arthur. What do you say? Shelf or trash for Near Dark? Um, yeah, I really dig this movie a lot, and so I would definitely put it on the shelf. I, I think uh, just its approach to vampire uh, lore and its addition to the canon, I, I uh, like it quite a bit. And also, um, I think it really just informs and and gives insight into uh, Bigelow's uh, approach to a lot of different themes and topics and uh, feels like a good uh, leading point into, you know, point break. And so I, I, I think it goes on the shelf for my, myself personally. Alrighty. Well, thank you very much for that. What do you say, Dalt? Shelf or trash? Yeah, I, I'm right there with Arthur. Uh, you, you know me. I like a, I like it a vampire, uh, and this is just doing a lot of weird stuff. Uh, I think Dustin, it was you that said earlier in this episode. There's just not a whole lot like it, uh, and I've gone to bat many times on this show for movies just because there's nothing like them, and this is no exception. Uh, for all of its shortcomings, for all the things that make you go, mm, yeah, this is a low budget, uh, a, a lower budget movie from the '80s. This is a second film. For all the things that make you say that, I, I think those things only strengthen the film uh, in terms of its ability to just be endearing and charming uh, and, and to be interesting and fun. Yeah, I think there's just a lot going on here. Uh, it's so damn pretty to look at. And, and yes, I, I think Severin's maybe one of the coolest villains uh, ever 
potentially. <laughs> so yeah, this is a shelfer, absolutely. Uh, I am also going to uh, tune in to agree and say yes. Um, it's definitely a shelfer. I mean, you, I, I've got I've got a podcast on vampires. I like this stuff. Uh, this is this is definitely within my wheelhouse. And uh, yeah, it's got flaws and there's things about it that you know I wish were done differently. But it's not a movie I've stopped thinking about since I watched it, and uh, that's saying something. And so it's a movie I still want to keep thinking about. And so uh, the crash drums are coming in, so I'm going to tune out. You guys can take us home. Thank you, Dustin. Uh, well, um, uh, for all you uh, great dear listeners out there, uh, we hope you enjoyed our talk on Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. Uh, we do have another movie coming to you uh, next week as we discuss uh, the brand new Pixar film, Onward, uh, which is now on Disney Plus uh, after only four weeks roughly in theaters but uh with everything going on uh they moved it straight to streaming almost immediately just a couple weeks after uh kind of going uh, video on demand and so you can watch it for free uh if you have disney plus um just kind of an interesting i think circumstance uh, all around with uh covid's impact on theatrical distribution and we may get into that a bit uh so yeah, we'll be looking at Pixar's Onward next week. So uh, as Dustin always says, Dalton, anything from you? Yeah. Oh, oh, Arthur, uh, there is something from me, and I've always wanted to say it. You, you heard Arthur, listener. It's very exciting time to be watching movies because it's about all we can do. So uh, you keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you next time. Oh, it feels so good. I'm not I'm not afraid.